Well, many churches uh, will perhaps be marking this particular Sunday by uh, the restoration of normal congregational singing. I realize there is, has been variety across the country, but I suspect many churches will be doing that. And it is just a good point for us to just pause and think uh, for a while as to why we sing, uh, what the purpose of this is. And uh, I'd like us to look this morning at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19, where the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesian church, talks of speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We're given the context of this by the preceding verse, where he says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In contrast to the riotous, intoxicated behavior with no doubt drunken singing, uh, he's saying there's a different kind of intoxication. Uh, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he brings out what that means. And you notice that really covers all that's said for the rest of this chapter. It includes how we behave in the home. It also includes uh, into chapter 6 how we behave in the workplace, being filled with the Holy Spirit. There is a parallel passage to this. We just noticed this in the Bible study this week. There is a parallel passage to this in Colossians and in chapter 3. And the parallel verse to Ephesians 5.19 is Colossians 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And we noticed uh, at the midweek meeting that there is a parallel between being filled with the Spirit and let the word, letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The two go together. They mustn't be divorced. Uh, he's the Spirit of God. He's the Spirit who's given us the Scriptures. And um, uh, that is the mark of a Spirit-filled life, is to have the Word of God dwelling in us richly in all wisdom. And as part of this word enriched life, this spirit-filled life, we are to engage in congregational singing. Uh, we're to do this not in order to make ourselves happy, but in order to express what is already in us through the filling of the Holy Spirit. I'd like to try and examine this verse in a bit more detail by asking some questions about it. And the first is this, what is it exactly that is to be sung? Well, the answer is it's not a difficult, quest, a difficult answer. It's here in the text. What is to be sung is psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now, if you know something of the church at large, you'll know that that in and of itself creates a difficulty straight away because um, our dear friends, particularly in Scotland and Ireland, and certainly uh, down the centuries have interpreted that statement to mean the Psalter, the book of Psalms in the Old Testament, and therefore they sing metrical psalms. 
And many of them, have, a lot of them have been godly people who God has much used. So what I'm going to say now is not in any sense meant to uh, disagree with that point. But does that, is that what this uh, statement is saying? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And there appears to be some validity in what they do because you get those three, you get three words at the headings of uh, various psalms in the Psalter. One is psalm, the other is hymn, and the other is song. And so they say, well, this is just three different descriptions of the psalms, of the Psalter, and we should only sing the psalms. The expression that's often used is exclusive psalmody. Now, this is not an unimportant point, and I therefore, particularly as we're thinking of sung worship, I'd like to just spend a little bit of time on this. The first thing is just on the very surface of things, the expression, particularly in the context of us being filled with the Spirit, and we might say the right kind of intoxication, the right kind of delight and joy, it doesn't suggest three different statements for exactly the same thing. There is, would you not think, something of fullness being implied here? Uh, And then the very word spiritual, because in the Psalter, where you get that word song, it's not prefaced by the word spiritual. In other words, the apostle is implying that you may well be singing songs, but make sure they are spiritual songs. So that suggests straight away that he's not thinking of psalms necessarily. I want to just give you uh, six quick reasons why I believe this is not exclusive psalmody or six relevant points. The first is this, that even the metrical psalms in the, in the metrical psalm book are not actually the original scripture. They're paraphrases. And if we have a high view of scripture, every word proceeding from the mouth of God, all scripture given by inspiration, we would have to acknowledge that the hand of man has immediately worked over the psalms in order Uh, to make the metrical psalms. So that's the first point. Uh, The next point is this, that if that is indeed the uh, way in which New Testament worship is to be carried out, would this not apply, for example, to prayer? Would we not be required to use uh, the prayers of Scripture entirely? Uh, would that not rule out what is called extempore prayer? If there's no spontaneity in hymns, well, why should we have spontaneity in prayer? Because after all, what is a hymn? What is a psalm? What is a spiritual song? It's just a sung prayer. It's addressed to God, and it's therefore prayer. That's my second point. But then coming to more substantial points... Scripture itself, as we come into the New Testament, we find uh, that with the dawning of the coming of Christ, with the announcement of the herald John the Baptist soon to appear on the scene, there is spontaneous worship uh, resulting in Luke chapter 1. We have Mary lifting up her voice, 
and worshipping God in the words of a song. My soul doth magnify the Lord. My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. What's often called the Magnificat. And similarly, at the end of that chapter, Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, he too breaks into song, the Benedictus. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. Now, admittedly, both of these these songs draw heavily on Old Testament scripture, but not entirely just the Psalms. And they are new, they are fresh. And then we come come into the book of Revelation in chapter 5. What is it that the choirs of heavenly uh, glorified saints are singing and the angels singing? Well, of course, the Psalms, the Psalter is a precious thing and a precious part of our uh, sung worship. and, And if it's only, if it's so precious that nothing else could be sung than that, why do we read In Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9, they sung a new song. And here it is. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. That's the song. It's not a psalm as such. Or in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 3. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, that is the elect of God, which were redeemed from the the earth. It's a a typological figure. It means the countless multitude of the elect. And then just coming to one more uh, scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 15. Admittedly, this is almost certainly applying to a fellowship meeting at Corinth rather than Sunday worship, the structure of it. But nonetheless, we notice that within that fellowship meeting, Paul refers to singing with the Spirit and singing with the understanding also. Clearly, it, it was uh, happening that within that early church under the apostolic ministry, there was singing in tongues, which would or might or might not have an interpretation depending on whether that was given. But if it was a psalm, there would be no need for a tongue because it would be a known piece of scripture, a known word. But the tongue and the interpretation would be something completely new. So we have those scriptures, and then we have just the whole situation that what is going on here is that we've come by God's mercy into these last days when God has spoken to us by his Son, uh, whom he has appointed as heir of all things, and by whom also he has purged our sins. We're in the era of new covenant worship, And it's therefore no surprise that the uh, songs of the people of God are going to break into new areas of truth. That goes together with the point about the fullness of that expression, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it's because of that that um, 
the straitjacket, as, as I would see it, of psalms and even metrical psalms in the past uh, and paraphrases of psalms were broken, was broken by Isaac Watts uh, and many other hymn writers, Charles Wesley as well, as they realized that you have to use New Testament uh, thought and worship within sung praise. And then we have the testimony of church history. Many of our best hymns have been born in times of revival. They've been stimulated by times of revival. We think of the hymns, the great hymns of Martin Luther. We think, too, of the hymns of Charles Wesley and others. Indeed, we can say that there have been occasions when hymns have caused a revival. The publishing of one of William Williams' uh, books of hymns in Welsh brought revival in Wales, just the singing of those hymns. I know that's not a conclusive argument. We have to come to the scripture. But these are surely pointers into the fact that the thought of exclusive psalmody, while it is pious and our brethren who do that and believe that are good people, uh, we believe that is not, or I believe that is not what scripture is teaching. So that is what is to be sung. But then we come secondly to why are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to be sung. Let's look at exactly what the verse says. It says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So firstly, there is a horizontal um, component within the singing of God's praise. That also comes out very fully in the Colossians reference. Let me just give you that again. Colossians 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So there's an element, what we might call, of proclamation. Firstly, there's the use of the voice, speaking. To yourselves, it means among yourselves, because there's an element of proclamation. What have we been singing? I'll praise my maker while I breath. And when my voice is lost in death, praise shall employ my nobler powers. Yes, we've been worshipping God, but we've also been asserting that this is a world that God has created. And that uh, man is the pinnacle of his creation. And to praise him is our greatest delight and our greatest privilege. You see, there's an element of proclamation. That's why we don't just sing sentimental ditties. But secondly, of course, as, as I've just mentioned, it's for worship. That's primarily the case. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. It's for the glory of God. It's not just for my enjoyment. and It's not just because I like the tune. There are some tunes, quite honestly, I don't like that we sing. And perhaps you're the same, but I'm not singing that, the hymns for myself. I trust none of us are. It's for the glory of God. There are some hymns where the tunes are overworked. There are some hymns where the tunes are sentimental and inappropriate. There are some hymns where the tunes we have uh, perhaps were great in a previous age, but now they're not so good. But nonetheless, we are, yes, there's proclamation, but above all, we're worshipping God. 
just like with preachers. Not every preacher is as you would want. Not every preacher does it as you would want and so on. But nonetheless, what are you doing when you listen to a sermon? You're listening for the voice of God. And it's what God says to you that you're to take hold of. Not how many points the preacher made and did he make the points well. That is helpful, but that's not the essence. And then there's something peculiarly edifying about singing the truth. It was Augustine who noticed that. He said, I perceive that our minds are more devoutly and earnestly elevated into a flame of piety by the holy words themselves when they are thus sung than when they are not. That was very perceptive of him. There's a sense in which the flame of piety is earnestly elevated when we sing. That it goes deep, deep into our spirits. Unbelievers find it really difficult to sing hymns. Maybe when you were unconverted, you found it really difficult. Maybe if you don't like singing hymns, maybe this is one reason. Maybe it is that you're not converted yet. That God has not put a new song in your mouth and therefore you find it difficult to sing his praise because your heart is a heart of stone. It's not yet a heart of flesh. It's not a new heart. There's proclamation, there's worship, there's edification. And then how are we to sing? How are we to sing? Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Well, Firstly, clearly we are to sing in the spirit. That is the whole context of this. And that brings to us two things that are very important, particularly in these days. The first is there has to be stimulus, the stimulus of a spirit-filled life, of a word-enriched heart and church context, we could say. There must be stimulus, not the stimulus of alcohol, not the stimulus of worldly concerns and exhilaration, but the stimulus of the Spirit. But secondly, because it's the Spirit, there's control, there's self-control. This isn't a frenzy. This isn't a time of working yourself into some kind of emotional high with the name of Jesus Christ attached to it to make it sound good and feel good. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, gentleness, self-control. In the spirit. And of course, with understanding, that's clear from what we said, with understanding. So it's not just a case of singing words, what what have I just sung? But sing with understanding. Sing something that's solid and rich and true. It doesn't have to be 18th century, but it needs to be true from the word of God. And now I'm coming into... I know dangerous ground, but it's here in the word of God, making melody in your heart to the Lord. How are they to be sung? How are hymns to be sung and so on? Well, they're to be sung melodiously. Melody has beauty in it, does it not? It has some sort of order in it, does it not? It it may be of a different culture, of a different kind of beauty in order to what we are used to but there are certain things you can say that are not beautiful and the first is crashing discords 
And the second I suggest to you is heavy beat. And the third, flippancy, lightness, frothiness. I'm giving you the broad brush, friends, because we need to ask God for wisdom in these matters. But making melody in your heart to the Lord. And then the fourth thing we can say about how they're to be sung, they're to be sung obviously congregationally, yourselves, there's a plurality here, there's a, uh, an encompassing of the whole congregation. So singing hymns with soloists, well, there may be a place for that, for that from time to time as a kind of sung testimony, but as normal congregational worship, that is surely ruled out. Even the use of choirs, again, there, there is a place for that, Perhaps a good place for that in terms of proclamation in certain situations, but as a normal congregational practice, I can't find choirs in Ephesians 5. How are they to be sung? Well, as a church, we try not to go into how-to messages because the Spirit of God leads us and helps us uh, with so many of the details, and we're not living our lives, as it were, by some sort of code book. But nonetheless, having said that, I want to read to you what John Wesley says in his Rules for Methodist Singers, and they're at the preface of the hymn book that we use in this church. And what I'm going to give to you is an abridged version. It's not the full version, but listen to what he says. There's such wisdom in it, and it's so helpful to us. Firstly, learn the tunes. As far as you're able, learn the tunes. Don't just sing some singer with no, no tune. Obviously, do your best. Learn the tunes. Secondly, sing the hymns as printed because we're singing with understanding, because we're singing to the praise of God, because we're proclaiming. We've got to proclaim what is there. And then he says, sing all. By that he means sing the whole hymn. Listen to what he says here. Let not a slight degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up and you will find it a blessing. How often that has been the case, and I have often thought that when I have come to church, particularly if I've been in the pew and I've, I've maybe felt a bit off that day and not very spiritual and, oh, you know, I've got to raise my voice in a hymn, and then I remember what John Wesley says, if it is a cross to you, take it up and you'll find it a blessing. You may not be feeling well. You may have a headache. But take it up. It'll be a blessing. It's to the glory of God and it's to the edification of his people. Then he says, sing lustily and with a good courage. Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep. Be not ashamed of being heard. The crowds that sang the song at the football, the semi-finals, were they ashamed of being heard? They weren't. So why should we, dear friends, be ashamed of being heard to sing God's praises? But listen, he, he moderates the point because in the next point he says, sing modestly. Do not bawl so as to be heard above or distinct from the rest of the congregation that you may not destroy the harmony. 
but strive to unite your voices together so as to make one melodious sound. That's good, isn't it? And then six, sing in time. Do not run before and do not stay behind it. And then final points. Above all, sing spiritually. Have an eye to God in every word you sing. Aim at pleasing him more than yourself or any other creature. To do this, attend strictly to the sense of what you sing. And see that your heart is not carried away with the sound, but offered to God continually. There, dear friends, is real spiritual advice. No wonder the Methodist revival, someone has said, was born in song. Well, that's how we should sing. I believe Wesley there distills down well something of the sense of Scripture. And then finally, to whom shall we sing? Well, we're told singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now notice the next verse. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you go through this passage, it is quite clear that usually when the apostle uses the word Lord, he is thinking of Christ himself. For example, as he speaks about the submission of wives to their husbands and the relationship between Christ and the church, he talks about the Lord nourishing and cherishing the church as a pattern of Christ nourishing or as the husband nourishing and cherishing his wife. It's particularly the second person of the blessed trinity that's in his mind. And I believe we can say that concerning the use of the word Lord here. We are worshipping God, of course, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but there is a sense in which we particularly are addressing Christ. That was what one of the Uh, secular Roman writers said, I think it was Pliny who said about the early Christians, they sing a hymn to Christ. That's in there in the secular literature. Sing a hymn to Christ. How much there is to praise Christ for, to praise him for his incarnation, to praise him for his ministry, for his sinless life, to praise him for his uh, glorious healing and Uh, teaching ministry, to praise him as our prophet, to praise him as our priest, to praise him for his sacrifice for us of himself, to praise him for his self-offering, to praise him for his example, to praise him as our king, to praise him for his atoning death for the cross, to praise him for the burial of Jesus in the tomb for us, to praise him for his resurrection for us, to praise him for his glorification for us to praise him for his heavenly intercession for us, to praise him for his coming again. That's why we sing. It's not just to fill up the service, to do the hymn sandwiches they talk about it. That's why we sing. It is an exquisite part of the service of worship. It's a part that we've deeply missed when we haven't been able to sing in an unfettered Way. And it's a part we're delighted to return to. So let us, dear friends, do it spiritually, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Amen.